this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 291. We're recording on Thursday, December 13th. Actually, it's Friday, December 14th, and I just didn't update the agenda. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, and I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we are coming to you from bookriot.com with the 2018 year in review. It is that time of year where the days just sort of schmear into a December paste. Like, you know, it's just from the from now until the <laughs> yes. end of the year. It could be the 18th, it could be the 29th. You know, no one really knows until we roll the calendar over. So I sprung this format on Rebecca literally 90 seconds ago, where we knew we were going to do the year in review show today where we talked about the big stories from the year. But I said, well, wouldn't it be, would it be interesting if we didn't know what the the – other person was going to pick and we kind of do a draft of the biggest stories of the year. And we can talk about why we picked one versus the other and, uh, you know, inject a little uh, surprise into it rather than running down the list of, of links, well, which we could do. Well, one of fun. us is surprised. Well, you'll, I'll be surprised by what you think. <laughs> true. That's right? true. I mean, uh, so anyway, no, th- that's, that's it. I'm trying to think. And then next week is our non book favorite things of the year. Yes. I guess it could be, I don't know, anything. Also, I think we'd mm-hmm. also solicit some um, listener pre-feedback uh, about your favorite non-book things of the year. And uh, maybe yes. we'll have a section for things we find particularly intriguing or might jog our memory or things that we mm-hmm. might want to try in, in 2019. So email us, podcast at bookriot.com. Let's do a sponsor. And then we'll get to the we'll, right. we'll do the number one overall draft pick. We'll come out, you know, one of these stories will come out in a in a bright white suit. Uh, you know, come hug the commissioner and uh, get oh. a big fat check for being the number one overall you know, draft pick in our in our draft this year. The NFL draft is one of my favorite days of the year. So I you remember are speaking you, my you love language about this right before. now. Yeah. I love it. I love it so much. All right. Our first sponsor this week is GH Mum Champagne. What do a South African female DJ a Wall Street businessman turned mixologist and one of the fastest men alive all have in common. They all dared to push themselves and chase their dreams and make them into their own victories. So this holiday season, GH Mum Champagne has partnered with Vice to showcase these amazing stories of personal triumph. Pop a bottle of GH Mum Grand Cordon, get inspired and celebrate your next victory. Hey, you never know. Maybe next year your story will be featured. Visit ghmumvictory.com. That's G-H-M-U-M-M victory.com to see all 10 stories. Thanks to them for sponsoring. All right. Now, time for us to begin champagning and campaigning for some of the best stories of the year. <laughs> I have the number one overall I draft see pick. You. Uh, apparently, as we just decided, the ping pong balls, I had the machine going. It came out, Jeff, um, over here. I, I struggled with my number one pick. Um, you'll hear what my other one was. I think 
I, again, you'll hear if, if you don't pick the next one, I'll have to talk about why I didn't pick this one versus the other one. But my pick is, and I'm, it's an omnibus, it's Me Too in publishing is the mm-hmm. big story of the year. Um, yes. You know, and I don't know if you thought about splitting them up to individual cases or, you know, concerns. I, I think it all goes in the same basket if, if you feel differently about that. I think if any singular moment I for the year – um, that crystallized around me too. I think it's Sherman Alexie um, mm-hmm. became that was the white hot center of the year uh, in Me Too for publishing this year. Um, so I think that's the big story of the year, and the Sherman Alexie story within that I think is the single biggest story within that larger story. Uh, what do you think about that selection, Rebecca? I agree. I thought Me Too was the biggest story of the year, not just in publishing but everywhere. Yeah, right. um, and in thinking about the you know the different like manifestations of what happened with me too and the different ways that accusations got handled i think the sherman alexi moment was the big one um where there were so many accusations so many stories about him um he was like very promptly removed from things yeah. uh you know taken off of lists he removed himself from some things he did like kind of a the, there was that weird apology letter yeah. that wasn't really an apology but then after that he like got the message and just disappeared um which i think is probably the correct mm-hmm. action for him uh, but the we usually do the turkey of the year award on this show and like uh, it's hard in a year where you have something that's really as grave as me too to award no, right. the totally turkey right. of the year um but i've been thinking about if there were a version of that for specifically how me too was handled and so my pick for the turkey of the year in publishing and me too is everyone who has not fired juno diaz <laughs> that, that's super that interesting was sort of was sort of the opposite of what happened with Sherman Alexie was there were also a bunch of stories about him. He wrote that New Yorker essay about his own experiences in which he kind of implicitly admitted to knowing he had done bad things. But then all of his employers conducted these independent reviews where they determined like, and I know that this is CYA legal stuff, you know, but he wasn't fired by the Boston Review. He wasn't fired by MIT. And after he removed himself from the Pulitzer Committee, um, basically to not tarnish their name while this was going on. The Pulitzer conducted an investigation and just um, earlier, well, in November, mm-hmm. um, reinstated him as the chairman of the Pulitzer Committee. So, like, I understand the process by which these investigations occur, and they're trying to determine, like, are we at risk inside our organization of this person doing something bad, or do we have any indication that he has done something? bad in our organization that merits releasing him. And I'm sure that there are lots of contracts. And I know that it is hard to let someone go who's been tenured. Like I I get all of it. But I'm still hot under the collar about the fact that Juno Diaz still has these very um, distinguished positions. And so that's my take on the uh, good and bad handlings of this year in Me Too. Yeah, that that's, I think those two cases are, I don't know, ends of the spectrum, Ends of the mm-hmm. lollipop. I don't. I don't know how to think about it, but two different manifestations of this moment. Now, I think also the specificity about what the accusations were matters, but less so than looking at the broad scope of what's going on here. I think we'd be remiss to, even though this is not a new news story um, show, to talk about the um, multiple accusations that have come out over the last week or so against Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, mm-hmm. who 
is a big time best selling author now. Um, Astrophysics oh, yeah. for People in the Hurry sold a bunch of copies. He has a lot of books out. And we had known for a while there was one old claim that kind of fell into, and this is the weird algebra we do, I think, about some of this stuff, an old claim about something that happened 30 years ago from one person. And I, for whatever reason, it didn't it didn't bubble up into a thing where Neil deGrasse Tyson was being talked about. Right. But these stories came – it all came together. I haven't done much looking at where these women talking to each other kind of in in a Harvey Weinstein sort of moment of like mm-hmm. sharing stories like coordinated, and shared right. strength to, to come out about them. I don't know. Um, but in the book world, that's now – Tyson's even a bigger seller than Alexi. I mean, a bigger deal in the book world is Tyson, even though he's not just an author. And mm-hmm. Alexi wasn't just an author either, but largely known as an author. And seeing how that one is going to play out, because he has a giant podcast, and he's on PBS, and he's at the American Museum of Natural History. I mean, those are sure, and the book was serious positions, yeah. and it's t- it's going to yeah. be another it's, case it- of how this plays out. I think it will be really interesting to watch that as well. And it was one of those where, like, I think we took note at Book Riot when that allegation from several decades ago came up last, I think it was last summer um, or earlier this year. The timeline on this is all very mm-hmm. fuzzy now. Um, but I remember discussing it and folks at Book Riot deciding not to inc- like include him on lists anymore for that reason. But it did quite like it, that one allegation got lost in the in all the noise about other people that have multiple allegations. And so to see them piling up against him, yeah. um, hopefully this leads to some action around that. And it will be interesting to see like how the publisher handles it. He has a lot of employers to do a lot of different kinds yes. of things. Um, but how his publisher handles it, how other publications decide to handle it. Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, I remember, was like up for the Goodreads Awards yep. last year. And I'm pretty sure it was on Amazon's like top 10 of the year list, um, recommended gift book lists. Uh, and that book is like kind of perfect for those yep. things. But will be very interesting to see. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that as well. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes this episode um, for, I don't know, I, I don't have one in front of me that's a an overview of the, the recent allegations or if there's a mm-hmm. direct statement by one or more of the women, I'll, I'll try to find those as well. Uh, the second one, this is the other one I wrestled with. I, I chose the Me Too because I think it is a tectonic change, whereas this one is a big deal, but I think in the fullness of time, it will revert to some other – it will revert to a more familiar state. Whereas with me too, I don't think mm-hmm. it will, if that makes sense. So the Nobel okay. Prize disaster uh, yes. of 2018, <laughs> ongoing disaster um, where, boy, we did a whole annotated episode about how it happened, so it's hard to summarize <laughs> – but it well, also you know, falls under the the umbrella of Me Too because it started mm-hmm. with sexual assault allegations. So that's another reason why it's in a way a subset of the Me Too moment. Now it brought out all kinds of weird idiosyncratic things about how the Swedish Academy is put together and how the Nobel Foundation funds the Swedish Academy. Long story short. Uh, actually, I can't do that. Long story middle. Um, <laughs> TLDR? Someone associated with the Swedish Academy had sexual assault allegations brought against them. And there was an internal investigation in the Swedish Academy, which awards the Nobel in literature or selects the pro- selects the winner and the Nobel Foundation gives the money. It's a little complicated. And the handling of that wasn't great. 
and some members of the Swedish Academy, the committee that selects the Nobel for Literature in the Swedish Academy Committee, resigned in protest, except that you can't resign from the Nobel Committee. Um, you can only stop voting. And, and since you can't resign, you can't be replaced. And they fell below the number of people they needed for a quorum, basically to take any action. One of the actions being changing the bylaws to change the number you need for a, a quorum and that people should be able to resign and be replaced. And it fell into a death spiral Hotel California situation where you can check out, but you can never leave. And they are still stuck in neutral. Mm -hmm. And we don't, there will be no Nobel in 2018. They said they are going to award two Nobels in 2019. We still don't know how the Gordian knot of this situation is going to be cut. We're waiting on King Gustav to, and I'm not joking, <laughs> maybe do something um, about this. The Nobel Foundation, my guess is ultimately that's where it goes back to. The Nobel Foundation will revoke the charter, the license, whatever it is that the Swedish Academy has to award the Nobel Prize. I think I think there's going to be a lot of flailing of arms until it gets there, but I feel like from what I know and see, that's where this is going to end up. I could be wrong. You know, um, Emily, if I'm wrong, tell me. Erica, if I'm <laughs> wrong, are, are, are Swedes who listen and have been really helpful in helping us untangle this show, uh, this, this stuff. Um, but I think that was, that was the third or where are we? Third biggest story or yeah. Third biggest mm -hmm. story of the year. Somewhere in there. Somewhere in there. Yeah. I had, I had the Nobel stuff on my list too. And yeah. also as a subset of me too, but the particular way I was thinking about framing it was as um, the coolest, I think the coolest response I've seen or the most creative response I've seen to a me too yeah. problem is the new, the development of the new Academy and their Ooh. alternative Nobel um, that the you know, so group was formed in protest and they conducted their whole thing to um, select a long list of authors and then to do public voting and to give the award. And they got a, I think they got a significant amount of attention and momentum for it. And those kinds of like grassroots responses to things don't always catch on. Um, but that was the, I thought, the most creative um, response I saw to a Me Too connected thing. And especially interesting to see it, to see like a very grassroots person driven response come out for something that's as like complicated yeah. and nuanced and seemingly arbitrary as a lot of the Nobel Academy rules are anyway. The pop-up um, so Nobel is <laughs> kind of amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of amazing. And it was really neat to see it like they followed it all the way through um, and readers participated and were excited about it. We heard when we talked about it on the show, we heard from a lot of listeners on their opinions about what the lists looked like and who they would like to see when and why. And uh, I thought it was really interesting to see that. It was kind of one of the silver lining moments of like, you know, all of the stuff around Me Too is really difficult and really ugly. It's a reckoning that we need to have, but it's really difficult. And seeing um, a creative and thoughtful response of a group of people coming together to like to form a protest that was highly effective in getting some attention around the issue, but also doing something that generated something new, um, I thought was great. So that was on that was on my list. Is that your pick or um, did you was that a subset of Nobel? Do you want to you want to take I, a that's a one, two A pick? Or? I, Let's call that a that's a two A. Okay, go again. Um, then. So I'm gonna go for 
one of the things that we talked about the most all year long and then a specific thing or connected to that is like we just talked about Barnes and Noble yep. so much the like the future of Barnes and Noble is completely up in the air I think um, what kind of stores are they going to have what kind of prototypes are they doing who is going to be their CEO is Lynn Riggio the problem how bad was Demos Parneros like there were just there were so many elements to it. And the biggest sort of like womp womp disappointing reveal I thought of the year in publishing, but especially connected to this Barnes and Noble story, like Barnes and Noble was very dramatic this year. Mm. And the discovery that uh, they had a would-be buyer and that Parneros like scared the would-be buyer away was really interesting. And then we spent a while guessing about who might be ready to buy <laughs> Barnes & Noble. Who would it have been? Mm-hmm. And the discovery that it was W.H. Smith, I thought, was one of those like, uh, okay. You know, like it wasn't um, terribly interesting to talk about. We right. didn't have a ton of questions about it. Um, there wasn't a lot of a way to imagine what cool new thing is wh smith going to do with barnes and noble what does the future of barnes and noble look like if we lived in the alternate timeline where they had actually gone through with the purchase so that to me was we did just a ton if i have one big question lingering after Mm. 2018 it's what's going to happen to barnes and noble next year yeah definitely Um, but yeah the gift that, that kept on giving the Barnes reveal. and Noble stories, <laughs> just the the alternative concept stores, the Parneros, their mm-hmm. earnings, were they going to get bought out? There's a lawsuit. The hot goss piece in the New York Times about Len Riggio being a micromanager yeah. and just the whole – their stock was a problem. It's, wow. It's just, like their pants are not all the way on over there. No, but we, really It gave didn't. us a lot to talk about. <laughs> And yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, we haven't talked about a specific title-related story yet. And I guess that's what I'm going to pick for mine mm, next. Okay. And it's not one title, a basket of title, but the the Trump books, mm, the fear, mm-hmm. the fire and fury. I think some of um, some, not all, but like it's part of the becoming story, which is now the book of the year by any stretch of the imagination. But there's a little bit of some of the juice behind the. Ob- Michelle Obama book is people looking for somewhere to go with their, you know, looking for someone to look up to, frankly, in the American um, political realm. Um, And those books sold. And there's more deals coming. We even got books that didn't sell, but that we talked about, you know, Sean Spicer's book came out. Um, You know, the Comey book. I don't know that that ended up selling all that great, but it was a moment. But, you know, every quarter or so we had a big Trump-related book story to talk about. And boy, you watch, you open CNN.com today or every day, basically Mm -hmm. since the midterm elections, and the water's getting hot over there. And who knows what's possible at this point. It feels even like things are developing so quickly that a book may not be the right medium to talk about. I mean, it's just the books happen even quickly, ones that happen quickly, like Fire and Fury, I don't think I'm going to be able to keep up with whatever's going to happen over the next two years before the next election. So I I wonder if 2018 was the year of the Trump effect in books. We'll see. And even like the the kids' books, like there were kids' books, like on late night shows that were sort of mm-hmm. related to the political moment. Like it just had all sorts of weird effects it, all over the place. It did. I, I almost put those kids' books from late night shows onto my list. <laughs> As well. And I think it was both the Trump books were both a story and a non story yeah, of the year weirdly, in that they, right. they sold like 
Fire and Fury sold really well. Um, but that also had something to do with that, like the publisher underestimated the demand for right. it. And so it was unavailable for a little while. Um, Fear sold really well because Bob Woodward. But then there was like Omarosa's book and Sean Spicer's yeah. book and, you know, some some of the other ones that like just did not splash in the way that they were anticipated to. And I, I actually think it goes back to Fire and Fury, where when Fire and Fury came out, there was this sense that like, this book is going to reveal things that maybe this will actually do something, you know, like, now we have like a book documentation, even if it's gossipy, of like, what's going on in the White House, and this is going to maybe have like, it will be eye opening, and it will have some results. And people, I think, also had that sense that maybe fear would do that as well. The other like tell all memoirs, not so much. Um, But it became pretty clear after Fire and Fury that like, there's not a gossipy story about the White House that's bad enough to take Trump down. And it's and that's indicative of like, sort of how inured to all of this stuff the American public is right now. And also just what's going on in that administration. Um, That like, it's, you know, the news this week has been very interesting regarding um, the president's possible legal troubles. Uh, but it's going to ha- I think it's going to be like we're, we have learned now in 2018 yeah. that if anything is going to like remove President Trump from office, it's going to have to be stuff that goes through official legal channels. It's not going to be um, something that gets revealed in some book, whether the book is gossipy or researchy. And so I, I do think this was the year of the Trump book. And my guess would be that we'll see fewer of those mm-hmm. next year and in 2020 like i think the trump book thing is kind of over until yeah. the trump administration is over and then people can really start talking um that they didn't have a political impact these books um so for that like they sold well that was mm-hmm. a story but there was really no big picture impact of them what i hear you saying is fire and fury signifying nothing that's that's what i'm hearing you yes. uh, say with this yeah right now. i think Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think on my notes, it was um, the thing that we thought was going to be a thing, but that became not a thing, Fire and Fury. (laughs) And I guess it kind of makes sense because people who were inclined to believe bad things about Trump, and I'll put myself in this camp, kind of already believed the worst possible things. So you couldn't really tell me anything that would make me think differently of, of the guy, and that people who didn't already were in a state of mind not to believe them for whatever reason. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to leave it there um, for the moment. So like, if if that's the camp you kind of fall into, there's not, it's hard to move either. There's two needles that are hard to move there. Um, and none of these stories were different enough, really kind of stuff we already knew just from the campaign, frankly, to, to really have much of an impact so that liberal jerks like me are buying fire and fury and fear to, as a sort of confirmation bias somehow like you yeah. know yeah it is it's true it's like it's real shouldn't this do something isn't this the silver bullet isn't this the um stake through the heart for the vampire and really it's like no because the people who support him don't believe it or care or you know that's a we're not a politics podcast there's been plenty of those to try to suss out how that really works um but What's going to happen is going to be institutional, as you said. It's going to be either through the courts and mm-hmm. or it's going to be at the polls. And it's starting right. kind of in both of heated up at the same time, it seems to me. And maybe those are related. I'm not smart enough about the political process yeah. to know, but that seems to be the case now. Yeah, I think those books had a real preaching to the choir thing yeah. going on. And it just it took 
a couple of them coming out for us to realize that that's what was happening was Ooh. that people people who were open to being convinced that Trump is a bad guy um, weren't the ones picking up the book. People who were skeptical that he's a bad guy were also not picking up these books. We weren't like Fire and Fury was no one's conversion moment no, no. Um, in, in the way that it was anticipated or hoped i think this was kind of a hope springing eternal situation but mm. it was hoped that this would open some eyes and it was opening no eyes it was confirming for people who already believed that i think you're right there you know we talked um, when we Fire should do a sponsor came, oh we should do a sponsor i've got another actually let's do this real quick because we talked when the okay. wolf book came out who we want a trump book from you know like if we oh. could pick someone mm-hmm. and i think at that point we had said melania like was our number one pick i'm off that train um oh same so I don't know if you have another pick, but a I will say for my pick, a spotlight-like movie about the Mueller team in the fullness of time, mm-hmm. I I'm I will be buying my Fandango, Fandango ticket early for that, or the book or whatever, <laughs> because of all the posturing and stuff, Mueller's public non-speaking and stoic and like sort of granite countenance is what a, mm-hmm. what a contrast um, to the person and the the in- administration being investigated, almost Shakespearean in its in its it contrapasso. Really it's really amazing. So anyway, do you have anyone else you want to nominate right now, or you know, throw them okay, all into so a basket this is a beautiful... and put it to the bottom of the ocean? <laughs> <laughs> so this is my beautiful dream that I know won't happen okay. because white because of like the codes of ethics that White House employees. Um, like the folks who work in the White House and who were there through administ- through multiple administrations, you know, like the people who make the White House mm-hmm. run are um, held to really high standards to be publicly apolitical and to not speak about their employers um, or to not speak about the president or who lives in the White House one way or the other. But the dream that I have is like an oral history of what it was like to work in the White House during the Trump administration. You know, like I want stories from um, the people who like the people who work in the kitchen right. and the like the butlers, the um, personal assistants, that kind of stuff about like, here's what it was really like. Here are some things like there. I think when this is far enough in the rear view, I will want mm. all the dirty gossip that confirms to me like this guy is gross. Um, and and it would just be satisfying to hear those stories. But like, it'll never happen, but I'm allowed to have a beautiful dream. And so that's what it is. Yeah, there's that famous picture of Obama giving a fist bump to a, a janitor, right? Do you remember? It's mm-hmm. a pizza. Yeah, right. That mm-hmm. guy's story. I don't know if he's still in the White House, but if yes, he is, that exactly. guy's story, yeah. right? Like, what? what is... Right, yeah. And I think there's a photo, there's a bunch of photos in Michelle Obama's book. Mm. And one of them is her and Barack giving something to like someone who I think was one of the cooks, like one of the chefs in the White House and who had worked there for decades. Um, and so they do, and she talks in the book and like other former presidents have talked about, like, you do form relationships yeah, with the sure. staff. Um, so what is what was this you know, time with the Trump administration, like, I would love to hear those stories. And just fascinating. It would be fascinating to get voices that we never get to hear those voices. Okay. And you know what, these people, if they wanted to could use our next sponsor to tell <laughs> oh, their stories. StoryWorth makes it easy and fun for you and your loved ones to share their stories so you can get to know them in a whole new way with questions you never thought to ask. So you can get a subscription for someone you love. And each week, StoryWorth will send them an email with questions about their life. They simply reply with their story. They can type it out. They can record it over the phone by calling the StoryWorth number. All the stories are private, 
and only shared with the family that you choose. You can easily and securely save and edit all your stories on StoryWorth.com. After a year, the stories will be bound into a beautiful keepsake book. StoryWorth brings families together every week and is a great way to connect with your loved ones, learn about your relatives, and preserve your memories for future generations. StoryWorth makes a great gift for the holidays for any of your loved ones who enjoy telling stories. So I I did the sign-up process because I was like, sounds really interesting. One thing Michelle and I have been... Mm -hmm trying to do is like capture some of our kids' childhoods as sort of as it's happening, right? We have the oh, phones nice. and the videos and the pictures. And we have a lot of pictures. Definitely really, you know, the the iPhone or having a camera phone around you all the time gets you pictures that I don't think you and I as kids, our parents just didn't have no. those kind of pictures because they needed film and blah, blah, blah. Now you can have it all. But some of the narrative, like what happened this week or what, you know, what was your first ex or your, you know, something funny you said, because this time my kids are five and seven. There's a lot of discovery. There's a lot of funny stuff that happens. There's <laughs> trauma, there's sadness, there's being sick and, you know, um, all those sorts of things. So you can make up your own prompts too. So every week I'm going to record something about my kids, you know, that, that happened oh, that, that week. So in just, the, I, I think what I've found is I've gotten older and the kids have gotten older, we got plenty of pictures about Christmas time. It's the daily stuff, right? About mm -hmm. we went to ride bikes today and we took, talked about the birds. That stuff's going to go away into the, I'm just going to start crying if I'm not careful. Easy, Rebecca, <laughs> easy. That's the stuff that you like want to capture. You got yourself into this. I know I did. It's my, well, you know what? I signed up to do it for myself for like a stories about me for my kids, like, or, you know, my family. And mm -hmm. the first one is tell us about mm -hmm. your grandparents. My grandma just said, I'm like too real story worth just oh. it. back off, back off, back off story worth. <laughs> but this is the kind of stuff you can capture, right? This kind of stuff that you don't want this stuff to go away. You know, if you have people that are really interested in genealogy, you know, and, and relationships and th stories from your family's history. So you can use the prompts they have. You can write your own and there's a lot of interesting ways to do it. I think it's be really great. People, as you get older, especially start getting interested in this. So if you have a, have a parent mm -hmm. or a grandparent um, that you want to set up in your home for the holidays, you can get them a subscription and then help them set it up, right? Because there's, you know, there's a little bit of technology here, but it's not that hard. You just a little bit to get them signed up. Here's how you do it. I think it would be especially great to get, if you could get people to record their own voices um, because that's stuff that goes away too. So anyway, for $20 off, visit storyworth.com slash book riot when you subscribe. That's storyworth.com slash book riot for $20 off. I think it's your selection. I picked the Trump effect um, and we sort of went back and forth about it. Mm -hmm. But I think you're up next if you'd like to pick a story. Okay, what would I like? You know, I've been thinking a lot about flash in the pan oh, stories okay, that, great. that particularly like I have this down as flash in the pan backlash um, oh. that then don't actually become anything. And in the larger scheme of the show, we spend a lot of time talking about libraries and ebooks and pricing and ebook lending. And my biggest backflash, backflash, flash in the pan backlash, which is like a tongue twister I didn't intend to write for myself, um, it, that didn't actually become a big thing was when Tor, uh, uh, the Tor books announced this summer that they were going to delay ebook lending for libraries four weeks, four weeks, four months, sorry, mm. four months from the print publication of the books because they had determined that ebook lending was 
uh, cannibalizing their print sales. And there was this like huge outcry for like three days on the internet about how this was a giant leap backwards and it was a disservice to libraries and a disservice to library users and it wasn't fair and maybe it was just a cash grab. And I haven't heard anything else about it since July. Yeah, I think this is so, one of those situations where it's one of those, like the initial change feels like a big deal, but maybe you can get used to it. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I, that's a really good point. We haven't heard much more about that. Um, librarians themselves were understandably, I think, frustrated. They want to get stuff to patrons as soon as they can. Sure. We haven't heard a lot of, pay I, I guess it's kind of like if you hear from the patrons, if you hear from users on scale, then maybe it's a bigger thing. Mm -hmm. Um and I guess at some point, maybe the null hypothesis will be true that it doesn't make that much difference. But if and when Tor McMillan changes it back or delays it even further, we'll have some secondary indicator about the, the, the effect it has or that they're seeing on book sales. So you're right. I agree. That's a wait and see sort of situation. But it didn't get, pick much momentum for sure. Um, yeah. I would love some follow-up. I don't know if we'll get it or not, but it would be interesting for Tor to follow up on this announcement and be like, hey this actually did help improve our sales making yeah. this change or it didn't. So we're going back to the regular, you know, the previous policies, um, but we didn't hear anything. And I think you're right that librarians were upset about it for good reasons um, having to do with how they serve their communities. But we didn't hear at least in anything that rose to, um, to my desk, we didn't hear from readers who were noticing this change. And I, th I always think that's very telling that yeah. um, it's one thing for the folks at the top or the people who provide the access to be like, oh, this is a disservice to readers. And it very well may be. But if the readers don't feel the change, if they don't, if they don't actually notice it, if no one is suffering because this ebook lending thing has been delayed by four months, I think that's also you know, very interesting and mm -hmm. a good data point for the next time a publisher thinks about making a change like this. But yeah. I was just kind of like, what happened with that? I went digging a little bit. I couldn't really find any significant follow up to it. So yeah, we got, I got a lot of listener my... feedback too. And for a minute it was super mm -hmm. hot, you know, you're right. It was like, like a yeah, little oil, an oil flare up uh, on the, on the stovetop. Um, mine, you never know where to put these. I guess I'll go as, this is as good as place as any for them. You know, authors die every year. We lose we lose mm. names every year. And this this year, maybe as I've gotten older and I've I've read more, but this year there's two names especially that were important to me as a reader. Um, Ursula K. Le Guin and Philip Roth both passed away this year. Um, you know, the kind both names that will live on for a long time. We talked about them both at length um, when mm -hmm. when they died. And different people from a different generation that have you know, uh, in the in the if you look at sort of a if you were to graph out influence, they would kind of have opposite curves. You know, I think Le Guin's mm -hmm. influence has risen over time, even since she was more actively writing. Whereas Roth's has been on the wane, and we talked about both of those things. That the the long the future history of speculative fiction in American literature seems to be that's a stock you want to buy where mm -hmm. the stock of, let's call it straight ahead literary fiction, even though Roth is not quite that because he has some, you know, permutations and experimentations, but the, the, the centrality of straight ahead literary fiction seems to be on the decline as a modality that that is central to, to books in America. So I think they're, they're showing an interesting contrast and that they, they passed away in mm -hmm. the same year and were similar in age really fascinating but 
that that's a big deal. Um, even if it's really a news story about the end of something rather than a change or the beginning of something like so many of the stories we've covered this year are. Yeah, I didn't have any. Well, I didn't lose any authors that were really yeah. important to my reading life this year. So I have no equal seg equivalent segment. I no, guess, that's fine. That's all right. That. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do. I feel lucky mm -hmm. <laughs> that um, I had. I took a couple hard hits for a few years yeah, previous, right. um, so I feel lucky for that. But I do remember the conversation we had about Philip Roth was really interesting, and how um, his work, reading his work through the lens of 2018, is very different than yeah. it would have been to encounter his work when it was brand new. Uh, and what you were saying about Ursula K. Le Guin and the sort of inherent uh, feminism of her work, the progressive nature yeah. of her writing and to and that she her star like her star among mainstream readers, I think was really still rising yeah. um, in the last couple of years, she was becoming more outspoken and more or at least more her outspokenness was becoming more visible. Um, I'm not sure if it was a change in what she was doing or a change in the attention that was being placed on her or or both. But it is I had not thought about sitting her and Philip Roth next to each other and thinking about what those two things signified about this year and where we are mm -hmm. um, in the world of books and reading. But that's a really interesting observation. All right, you're up. Where to go? Hmm. You know, we didn't do a ton of methodology corner this uh -huh. year. Um, I think we haven't gotten, there haven't been a lot of really interesting studies, mm -hmm. but one study that happened that was, uh, like a very satisfying use of data to validate a thing <laughs> that we all already knew was when researchers broke down the lists of books that authors provide for the New York Times by the book column to show that male authors are four times more likely to recommend books by men than by women. And it was one of those like completely unsurprising, very expected outcomes. Um, but also very satisfying to see it this issue get enough attention that it's not just a thing people are talking about in publishing, but that someone ran the numbers. And now we have numbers for when someone protests about like, well, are you really sure? Yeah. Um, yes, we are actually really sure um, that male authors list books by men more frequently. We have some nomenclature that have come out of our shows over the years, you know, the five alarms, mm. not bomb, um, has, you know, that's one that we use now, the wheelhouse. The mm -hmm. one that mm -hmm. came out of this, a lot of people responded to positively. It's like, this was an antidote to gaslighting. I kind of said off the cuff, it's like, it's like spotlighting, right? This is a spotlighting right? kind of thing. It's like, it feels true because it is true. And here's the, I'm shining a light on the truth of it in a, you know, a comprehensive way. Um, in a backed up with serious investigation and quantitative data, um, mm -hmm. we would have been shocked if it turned out to not oh, be the yeah. case, right? So it was it was putting a spot like, yeah, that's it feels true because it is true, and here it is, and we can keep mm -hmm. this bookmarked or otherwise stored away for those dark nights of the soul when someone's like, well, that's just because whatever and whatever. It's like, well, I don't know, but how you like them apples? As uh, they would have yeah. said in Goodwill you know, Hunting. I think this is also connected not directly to Me Too, but to the fact that 2018 was like the year of women's anger yeah. going mainstream. Right. Um, so I guess I'm doing kind of two stories in one here, but there were a bunch of books this year about yeah. women's anger. There was Rage Becomes Her, there was Good and Mad by Rebecca Traster, there was Eloquent Rage by Brittany Cooper. I think there's another one. Um, 
And this thing, this particular phenomenon about male authors mentioning books by men much more than they mention books by women is something that women, like women authors, were just getting mad about yep. and talking about very vocally um, and, you know, pointing out the problem and rejecting sexist questions that were asked of them in interviews. You know, Lauren Groff was one of the yeah, that's flag right. bearers for this. And like, this is not just about Me Too, um, because this is not a Me Too sexual assault issue, but it's connected to like the year in which women were done. Um, and Me Too gave a lot of uh, momentum to women just starting to talk more about all of the problematic things that women experience in our lives and like bringing that to light. Um, and this is one of those things that um, that women authors are very overlooked yeah. um, by male writers who either fail to read them or fail to think of them when they get asked by the New York Times what books they like. Um, so it was interesting to sort of see all of that come together in yeah, this place. But yeah, we would have been shocked if the data had been anything else. I, I didn't get to it when I mentioned sort of the Trump effect, but because it's not really mm. related, but it also completely is. Like these books, some of them specifically reference Trump, but the unshackling, unfurling of particularly women's rage appearing between and on the covers of books from feminist cross-stitch books all the way up, you know, mm -hmm. all the way up the ladder to serious quote-unquote nonfiction and memoir. It's just the there's no more Fs laying around and they're just all getting put out into the world. And it's 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 a similar phenomenon related to the same systemic cause, but I think a very different kind of manifestation than the flash mm -hmm. in the pan that does nothing Trump books. I think those are the kinds of books, those are the kinds of unleashing, you know, publishing trends that may have much more effect than any specific like Trump tell all. That you know, we're gonna publish oh, books totally. about women being pissed off and suck yep. it if you don't like it, right? Like tough mm -hmm. tough tough noogies. Um so yeah, that's a really interesting <laughs> point. Uh, let's see. I guess I'm up next. Boy, I've got a lot of interesting ones. I guess I'm going to pick an, a, a, the big story that could be nothing or could be something that we still mm, don't know. Right. And that's Indigo comes to the U.S. Yes. Uh, we have one now in Short Hills, New Jersey. We had a wonderful slideshow. We had a lot of interesting um, feedback from our from our Canadian listeners. And, you know, we had a long discussion amongst ourselves and we sort of saw it. And probably on the retail side, that feels more like the future for good or for ill than Barnes and Noble's trying to get it, its act together. Um, that mm -hmm. feels like something, it's something growing versus something trying to survive are different stories. And Indigo feels like a story of growth and evolution. And I'll be super interested to see what happened. I guess the converse of that is the relative quieting down of the Amazon bookstore phenomenon. I mean, there's more this year that opened, but it seems like Amazon is now more interested in these other kinds of physical retail stores being the cashierless go stores or these bizarro four-star and above mm -hmm. rated product potpourri pop-up places. Um, I think whatever else we learned is that the Amazon bookstore is not a tidal wave. Uh, but the Amazon physical store is still churning out there in the ocean. It's a storm cloud mm -hmm. on the horizon. Whether it dissipates or not is still there. But I think the, the wave of Amazon dedicated bookstores sort of crashed upon the shore. And 
it is what it is. It's going to be a part of their strategy, but it's not going to be their strategy. It's not going to be a, it's not going to be a hurricane in the book physical retail world. Is my sense of that right from where you're standing or what do you think about I, that? Yeah, I I agree with that. I think we've seen that like you know, I don't think Amazon bookstores are a real threat to anyone else in the rest of the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um I had on my notes also like we had all the questions about retail this year and we spent a lot of time on Barnes and Noble with that but also wondering like what is Indigo up to and we had that wonderful slideshow yeah. from one of our listeners <laughs> who visited the store and checked it out. So it's interesting to see that experimentation and right forward looking growth rather than just trying to keep their heads above water. Um, and I also had notes here about what Amazon's four star stores is that a thing? Like, I, don't I, know. I think at this point, like, I'm feeling like uh, there hasn't yet been a big, there has not yet been a tidal wave of Amazon brick and mortar retail, which doesn't mean that there won't be, but I am definitely reaching that like cognitive bias place where it would take a big announcement from Amazon of something super right. interesting to me to be like, oh, well, for me to feel like, oh, this is this is actually going to be the thing. Like they announced the four star stores and we were just kind of head scratchy about like, what is this and why? And okay, so there's some books in it, um, but it's it's both interesting and not. It's kind of interesting how not interesting yes. the Amazon re- retail stuff has been so far or how not it, it hasn't been like outside the box mm-hmm. um, or really creative uh, outside of the fact that like not having a cashier is a new thing. But I think I'm going to be really intrigued to follow what Indigo is doing and to see if that makes a difference. I, I'm not anticipating a tidal wave from them either, right. but it would be very it will be fascinating to see what these higher end sort of lifestyle department store bookstores mm-hmm. look like. And um, as there are more of them, how does the American reading public absorb that and respond to it? It could be really bad news for Barnes and Noble. Yeah. Um, if, you know, if Indigo can sink their teeth into uh, readership here. So mm-hmm. I think that'll be interesting. Those were also on my list, just in, uh, I think, slightly different format. Sure. Um, let's see. You know, one thing we talk about every year that I think we share the desire to see go away mm. <laughs> or to be vastly improved is these big public voting, like vote on your favorite books. I had this kinds too. of things yeah. <laughs> that like <laughs> the great American read was the thing this mm-hmm. year. PBS, I think, spent all of 2017 promoting the fact that it was going to exist in 2018 and then spent all of 2018 making a, a really big deal about getting people to vote on their favorite books. Um, it was weird that not all of the time Titles on the Great American Read were actually by American authors, but never mind. We called it from the very beginning, as anyone did. Like, we're not special in having recognized this at all. That, of course, the winner would be To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. And that very likely the list of, you know, top 100 was going to be super white. And it was. And I'm just like, I'm just tired of this. We should be better than this. And the. The part, the like, the way that my editorial brain sees this is like, if you care about you know changing or affecting the landscape at all, then you don't just open grassroots voting to the public and like go in this place. You do some sort of seeding the list, or you set um, requirements up front that like you know the top whatever percent of vote getters from different categories will be on there. So you ensure that you have books by people of color 
or something. But I'm just over these predictable, like this is, it shouldn't be a story. You know, like it just should not be a story that the people voted and they liked To Kill a Mockingbird. There is nothing new or interesting about that at all. Yeah, and I totally this, agree. Totally yeah. Agree. I had this yeah. on here, but I didn't what know what your, to do with it. Like yeah. it was a big story, right? Because I've heard from listeners that they liked the, the episodes that appeared on PBS, which I, for whatever reason, and mm. the reason is I don't care, can't bring myself to watch. <laughs> but they said those episodes Same. were actually pretty interesting. And it's, you know, people that are famous and interesting talking about how they like books. And I think this is a case where because of what we do for a living, this is like not news to us that like people like books, yeah. right? And like, but I think right. in a different context, I would have been very interested to see an hour long, once a week show about how how people like books and what, you know, like Meredith Rivera's favorite book as a kid was. I'm just not there anymore because this is the water I swim around in. But in a different career path or a different sort of alternate version of myself, I can see myself being interested. Just not for mm-hmm. us, I think. I, yeah. I think the, the not for us also, though, that you pick up on is the the let's vote on it. The really the let's vote on an anything together yeah. over the just right. books or anything. I'm like, you know, maybe this is like election fatigue. I'm like, I, that's not interesting to me anymore. That's like, I don't know what that well, is. I, I think, I mean, I the point is well taken that folks enjoyed yeah. watching those episodes, but it's not, in my opinion, whether you swim in this water or not. And you're right, like, we are jaded about these things mm-hmm. and over it because of the work that we do. Um, but it's not a service to readers to no, be like, hey, did you right. know that To Kill a Mockingbird is a beloved book? You know, did you know that people like Harry Potter? Like, it's, it's, you get, you can get page views and clicks and you can get people to watch your episodes about those beloved shows. And there's nothing wrong with, especially PBS, wanting people to watch what they're producing. But it just, I think, like, the world of books is more interesting than that. And, or should be more interesting than that. And I'm just tired of seeing like that, like, this is the best we can do for a large scale public discussion about books and reading. I want something better. And tied to that was my, these were next to each other on Mm. my notes was the thing I wish we could talk about more is stories about how publishing is improving with respect to inclusivity. And my note about that is that, but then there would have to be those stories. (laughs) Like we need reasons for those stories to get told. And in the last couple of months, especially, we've as we've been getting end of the year data, we got the PW salary survey, and there were a few other things that came out where we were reflecting together on the air about like, it, it feels like there has been some movement, but not a lot of movement and not as much as we wish that we could see. It seems very slow how publishing is changing if publishing is changing. And on one of the back channels, we were asked, I think a week or two ago, like, why isn't there more discussion about like publishing data? on the show regarding the experiences of not just women, but trans and non-binary people. And I dug back through not just that PW salary survey, but a lot of the surveys that we've talked about on the show. And the very sad reason for that is that that data isn't being collected um, or is not being published in in the mainstream industry journals. I don't know um, if like in the Publishers Weekly survey, it wasn't there because they didn't ask about and they, if they didn't provide any options for gender identification that were not just you know male female, or if there were, if it was open but people did not feel comfortable identifying themselves that way, and there are just myriad 
institutional reasons that you might not feel comfortable responding to a survey um, in an industry that's as conservative as publishing has tended to be. But it was... um, like the reason that we're not talking about that data is that we, I, I haven't seen it. We haven't seen it. No one's collecting it. Um, it's not showing up. And I would I want more reasons to talk mm. about stories of inclusivity because I want there to be better inclusivity. Um, and I guess in the meantime, the thing that we will do is point out when something that we're looking at doesn't even bother to address the fact that there are people who identify as not binary and there are people who are trans and they're not represented at all in the data that's being presented about the publishing world yeah sadly the only stories we get related to people who are trans or gender non-conforming are these stories about um school boards or local libraries wanting to get rid of lbgtq plus related titles and so that that's where it pops mm-hmm. up that's where the stories pop up unfortunately at this point um, bringing those discussions more centrally to the, the larger discussions about diversity in publishing is something we want to do, but also would like to have. You know, we're sort of, we're we're a we're a secondary source of these things, right? So we we can go out of their way to try to find them, um, but they also need to be found. So uh, that's an open call too. If you've got a link, yes, please podcast at bookriot.com, and we'll make sure it gets into the show notes uh, there as well. Um, I've got a couple more sort of systemic things before I get to like more specific things that I just sort of liked from mm. um, the year. But one I wanted to talk about, and this is going back a little bit, I have to say, um, is to um, – let's see if I can find the link here. Uh, was it – I guess it doesn't really matter. The Walmart and Kobo team up that also kind of seems to be nothing, right? Of like ebooks and audiobooks <laughs> yep. and Walmart and like, you know, that also kicked off the um the huge logical mistake I made of thinking Walmart could be considered a book retailer uh and whether or not they'd be the <laughs> ones to buy Barnes and Noble. I think we were more interested for sort of the um almost the end cap strangeness of seeing even how those those were put together and displayed in Walmart stores and why they might want to mm-hmm. do it. And that's sort of like, kind of like a lot of um, the title specific stories in publishing this year were sort of Trump or Trump echoes. A lot of stuff that happens in book retail are Amazon or Amazon echoes, right? The Indigo, the Barnes mm-hmm. & Noble, this Kobo Walmart situation. These, these are all Amazon echoes. And sometimes when you see people trying stuff, you see weird, you know, necessity makes, or was it politics makes strange bedfellows, but retail make strange bedfellows. And this is one of those cases where like, oh, Kobo, the Japanese Amazon, basically, in Walmart, which is the American raccoon sort of weirdly makes sense, mm-hmm. but also totally don't, um, seeing what's coming out there. But anyway, that was when I remember thinking, this is definitely not going to be something, but it's an interesting thing to look at and be like, whoa, look what people have to do yeah. to try to even think about <laughs> dealing with Amazon. So I thought yeah, that was one the, that, that I'm w- going to remember. The Walmart Kobo... Yeah, Nothing Burger was also on my list. And very recently, I started getting served Facebook ads to buy Kobo ebooks from Walmart. So oh. I, like, I don't even know who's behind those. They're monitoring that, your Slack your uh, Slack conversations or, or uh, they must be. Skype recordings. Yeah, they must be. Um, we should do our last sponsor. Let's do our last sponsor. You know, we're coming up at the end of the year around this time. A, you've got a lot of time. You're traveling. You're cooking. You're making New Year's resolutions to get better, to learn more, might be a great time to try The Great Courses Plus because you can learn about 
virtually anything that interests you from top experts whenever you want. Unlimited access to stream thousands of videos, always at free, across so many different topics. Literature, history, art, music, how to cook, take better photos. I think one thing I like about the Great Courses Plus is like traditional sort of academic subjects all the way to like kind of life skill, everyday living improvement sort of things you can do with the Great Courses Plus app. And you can watch them from your TV, computer, tablet, or phone. You could set up your tablet in the kitchen as you're learning how to cook. You could put it on your phone as you're out in the world trying to take better pictures. You can listen along with the Great Courses Plus app anywhere. And one course they have that would be great for listeners of this show is stories about great storytellers. Fascinating, in-depth looks at the personal stories and watershed moments in the lives of authors we all know that led them to writing the beloved works that makes them famous. You know, one thing, if you've listened to Annotated, you know that I like, I like thinking about books in context, stories in context. Mm -hmm. When I was growing up, books to me were so much about like, it's this book on the shelf and I pick it up and I read it and then I pick up another one. It's really like a discreet, almost like it, it, it get pulled out of literature heaven and created out of nothing <laughs> for me to read in that moment. But one thing that strikes me about getting more and more into literary history as an amateur historian of this stuff is the effort and pain and struggle and joy that went into all of these stories of people trying to publish, to write, to promote, to innovate around books and reading and the books that have become standards in our own life's library have really interesting stories around them. And that's what this story, this course is about. So that's stories about great storytellers. Get a full month of unlimited access to all their lectures for free when you sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot. So I think I just went with Walmart and Co. I want to do a couple more each and we'll, I'm down to yeah, sort sure. of like more specific favorite things that we talked about this year. Mm -hmm. I'm off the Mount Rushmore. I'm, I'm down into the, my personal <laughs> faves. All right. Personal faves. Is it me? It's for you. Personal faves? I just Is did that... Walmart right, and Kobo. So, so we, if you have another big right. story, you could, but uh, my next will be personal faves. So I'm giving you a I am uh, out of big there. stories. Okay. This is my favorite use of literary whimsy for the year. Uh, back in the summer, we talked about the Toronto Public Library created their oh, dial yes. a storyline that you could call in to have a bedtime story read to you in one of 16 languages. And they, you know, they were pre-recorded, so it's not like there's a librarian on the other line, but it was an actual human voice reading bedtime stories. And I just think this is delightful <laughs> that you know kids would like it adults would like it i have no idea if people are actually using it or not but i love that like a group of librarians had a meeting one day and we're like you know what let's do a bedtime story hotline it's just it's just charming. delightful it's yep so that was my like favorite literary delight moment of whimsy my favorite is a story that we sort of became part of the story do you know where i'm going with this Oh, no. Circe. Maybe I should. Circe oh, right. by Madeline yeah. Miller and the weird pricing glitch that let the hardcover be, what, was it four ninety five? dollars Oh, a you know what? I was on vacation that oh, week. You weren't even, no, I missed right. the that's whole it's thing. Not, it's not as front in your memory because I think it was me yeah. and Jen that were talking about Rincey, mm -hmm. um, who hosts our um, Red or Dead podcast, discovered it 
because one of her followers on Instagram sent it to her. She wrote a quick post about it for the site so that our readers could find it. It, you know, we moved, I think, hundreds of units. We still don't really know Mm -hmm. because of a glitch in the Amazon pricing that apparently started with Target and Amazon has a price matching algorithm with Target and it shot up the bestseller lists and it, it was a New York Times bestseller. And I think there's a not insignificant chance that we became one of the reasons it was. And now it's appearing on best of lists all over the place at the end of the year. And it, you just don't know. It's a, is this a butterfly flapping its wings situation? It is a great book. So I don't want to say that we didn't have anything to do with Madeline right. Miller writing the book. But that early there was a sort of a, a weird butterfly flapping of a, of a thing that became a thing on our site. We talked about the show. A bunch of people we know bought it saying they weren't going to buy it otherwise because it was five bucks for this beautiful – it also happened to be a really beautiful hardcover. Like as an object, mm-hmm. it's fantastic. And so we got into the pricing and how these things work. And it just was really funny and interesting to be a part of it. And I, it couldn't have happened to a better book. I'm so glad it happened to that book of all books um, with us. But I think that was my favorite sort of like, I don't know, in our own backyard story. <laughs> got yeah. fell in our lap and then had ripple effects out from there. Yeah. you know, Somebody, I think one of our staff members, not on the editorial side, just asked me last week, like, oh, is was Cersei on the bestsellers of the year because of the Amazon thing? And I totally agree that it couldn't have happened to a better book because yeah. there's no way to know. It's a great book and it very well could have become a bestseller on its own. Like, we'll never know. We'll never um, know. If I were Madeline Miller, it would drive me bonkers to never know. Um, mm. You know, did I did I get there like on my on the merits of my writing? or was it because of the glitch um but that i think secondary to that or that's secondary to like the bigger part of the story is that it is a great book and it means something that we feel like we can't tease out the impact that that glitch that the glitch had because there you can think of many many books that if they showed up on the best-selling books of the year list and there had been a price glitch you would you could just be like well that's only there because of this like the only way to explain it is that there was this glitch but madeline miller stands on her own so well that it can't be taken apart yeah Uh, and hopefully that just means that yeah, I was just going to say, like, hopefully that just means that more people read this book than mm-hmm. otherwise would have and got exposed to it. I guess I'm just saying, at the very, the, there's a non-zero chance we had something to do with it. And it, maybe it's 1%, yeah, but yeah. we were there at a formative time in the sales trajectory mm-hmm. of that book because, you know, an Instagram follower pinged Rincey when we had the platform <laughs> and, you know, it kind of, um, the winds picked up a little you, and who knows if that was enough right, to yeah, push the boat You can't over the plan line. these things no, at all. Yeah. No. Um, you want to totally do one more? And I got one more. Yeah. You know, we had a lot of heroes of the year mm. this year, a lot of like nice, positive stories to balance out uh, some of the darker, more difficult stuff. And I just keep coming back to Dolly Parton. Yes. That like Dolly Parton is a stealth hero of every year of literature, I mm-hmm. think. Um, she has just donated her 100 millionth book through the Imagination Library, which is a literacy organization that she founded. And she presented that 100 millionth book to the Library of Congress uh, in early February. Uh, So in early 2018, we talked about it when it happened then. But who else has donated 100 million books to children? Who else? Tell me, Jeff. It's, uh, I got nothing. It's it's amazing. Uh, And she's just... 
I think the, I, I, my assumption about Dolly Parton and this imagination library is that it's something she so genuinely cares about that like there's not a press circus around the imagination library mm-hmm. every time something happens because she's just doing it. She cares about it. And something like having donated 100 million books rises to the level of like, oh, we should make this a special story. Um, but that's donate having donated a million books is a huge impact to have on kids. Having donated 100 million books is something that I've never heard anything like it before. Um, and so my like my cowboy hat, I guess, is off to Dolly Parton <laughs> this year. She, she's the forever hero of my book heart. <laughs> um, I'm going to do a couple stories that aren't really related, only, but they're related only in sort of a, um, I felt like a rubbernecker for both of these stories mm. and maybe guiltily so. The first is the accountant who embezzled $3.4 million from the literary agency. Yes, I forgot Um, about that. Yeah, which this was back in May. Um, It was Chuck Palahniuk's agent, wasn't it? Yes, and we haven't heard much follow-up, actually, um, Mm -mm. about this. For those of you who don't remember, I believe the way it came out is that uh, Palahniuk was expecting like a $400,000 check for the advance of his book that came out this year and didn't get it, which was different than him not getting royalties on his past books because the way royalties work, they get filtered through the agent. And I guess the agent could just say there were no royalties or something, I I guess, but there was plausible deniability, but there was no plausible deniability for that advance that I'm owed from Norton not getting to me. And so my understanding is that led to a domino effect of people asking questions, looking at the books, and oops, $3.4 million. Um, the accountant for this literary agency um, uh, took. Uh, Donadio and Olson, that might be worth me doing a Google ner- news search to see if we have any <laughs> secondary – because we haven't heard anything, right, about follow-up after no, that? Like we no. covered that story? Mm-mm, I haven't heard anything. It's been long yeah. enough that someone could have been indicted or the, the firm went the, – the agency went belly up. Um, so that one, I, I watched with uh, emoji eyes, I would say, as that one happened. Mm-hmm. The other emoji eyes story of the year for me was Sorkin versus the Harper Lee estate. Yes, yes. Where um, Sorkin, and the timeline of this is still a little unclear, but Sorkin signed a deal to adapt To Kill a Mockingbird for the stage, for Broadway, but in the intervening time, Harper Lee maybe died while he was working on it. But at, at the very least, the, the Harper Lee estate um, had a change of heart, to put it kindly, about what they wanted to be done with um, To Kill a Mockingbird on stage. And Sorkin was making some changes, and he overtly said that some of the stuff that came out in Ghost had a watch and was part of it. The early reviews just came out. And it sounds like it's interesting. I'll, I'll say no more because I think hmm. it's, it might be verging on a spoiler to say more about the reviews ah. um, because it's not a straight ahead adaptation. Um, but that one is one I watched with great interest because it was sort of the immovable rock versus an unstoppable force of Sorkin versus the Harper mm-hmm. Lee estate. And I have to admit, I'm a little off the Sorkin train, but I'm glad in this case that horse won um, in that race. Same. You know, I, I don't kind of care who beats the Harper Lee estate at this point, unfortunately, but uh, that's kind of where I, that's kind of where I am with that. So that's one that yeah. we watched with um, extreme interest in the oh, courtroom. Yeah. There was courtroom drama around, about courtroom drama stories, yes. which you can't get any more meta than that. 
I just still remain disappointed that we didn't get to see footage of the play being staged in the courtroom so the judge could determine what what to do with it. Because then you would have had to have, as I said, and my brain still explodes, you'd have a (laughs) courtroom scene in a courtroom. And then if we make a play about this story, there'd be a courtroom scene in a courtroom set in a courtroom. Come back to me, Jeff. I'm out. I'm out. I'm gone. I'm floating (laughs) off into space. (laughs) This is Major Tom calling ground control. Um, If anything's going to break our brains, it's definitely going to be something Why do you think I saved this for the last? I can't recover from this. Well, it's been a year. It's been a year. A good year year. um, for stories. Uh, A tumultuous and exciting. I mean, just looking at my life, there's stuff I didn't even get to. Like, we didn't even talk about. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we referenced it. Becoming was the book of the year. It happened late, but it be, it's its own thing. Three million copies now in print, mm-hmm. apparently. Like, oh, yeah. That train is still rolling. Um, I think the story of that book is yet to be written. Like, it's not a cut oh, off totally. at December 31st uh, mm-hmm. year. So, I, I told you that, um, I told you uh, in Back Channel that uh, uh, Michelle Obama's added a Portland stop. Um, to her book tour mm-hmm. in February at the Moda Center, which is where the Portland Trailblazers play. It's the NBA arena. And you and I were talking about, like, what other author could fulfill an arena? And we're saying, basically, no one, we didn't think. Yeah. And then the Obama's, not, it's, it's not fair to, to compare to the authors. This is not a book tour. But, but I'm saying that's, it's a transcendent kind of moment in the book yes. world. It gets beyond the role of books. And so Michelle and I both signed up for the wait list and immediately were waitlisted. Like, it sold out immediately. And mm-hmm. it's just... It's yeah. wild. It's an ongoing situation. Um, another one, I, and it's kind of related to this because Michelle and I were talking about how Michelle Obama is sort of like the, it's like the next evolutionary Oprah step of like Oprah's kind of mm. lifestyle packaging with like a political face on it, which is super yeah, interesting. interesting. But it then got me thinking about one one story we could tell about this year is kind of the the apex of the celebrity book club was this year. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. From late night talk show hosts to all sorts of things. That's another continuing story. There's another continuing story I wanted to throw in with that. Oh, was this peak adaptation? We'll only know in hindsight. <laughs> but I think there's a chance that this was that 2018 was the peak year, at least in the signing of adaptations. We still haven't seen some of the biggest pieces come. I mean, I guess the new um, the the new. Amazon, Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. whatever that's yeah, going that's to the be. Big one. Once that thing's cracks, we'll know. But how long can this boom last is going to be super interesting. And I think there's a chance we look back at 2018s that that was for signing IP. That was the big year. But we'll see. I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. So yeah, I think it'll be interesting. Rebecca, it's been Jeff. a good year. Thank you so much for going through all of this with me, with us. Uh, <laughs> oh, and uh, we'll do one more. We'll take a breather from book news. We'll, t- we'll take a deep breath. Yeah. And talk. Do you have, did you do your list already? Don't tell me. I don't want to know. Have you worked I'm, on your list no, of non-book stuff? I've been thinking about like the categories of things for my list of like, yeah. I think last year when we did other stuff we loved, we had like some tech stuff. We had some mm-hmm. music. Um, Books, movies. Yeah. Or yeah, not, movies, uh, movies, TV, um, movie, TV. Yeah, yeah, movies, TV. Yeah, we both always talk about TV a lot. Um, yeah, I, I have not gotten all the okay. way there yet. I've just started to think about it. So, all right, great. It'll be it'll be fun. As always, you can find links. Well, I guess what maybe I'll try to round up the links um, to the the stories we talked about. Put them there. Mm-hmm. 
Um, the additional link will be the what was that? Oh, the Neil deGrasse Tyson stuff. I know a lot of you will be interested yes. if you haven't already heard about that to to do your research and start formulating your whatever um, that you need to formulate around that story. Um, bookriot.com slash listen. Also, we would like to hear if you had a favorite story of the year. I still am interested in those. Also, if you have a favorite non-book thing of 2018, yes, maybe we'll do a quick hit of um, listener shout outs uh, there. Podcast at bookriot.com. Rebecca, next week, I'll talk to you. All right. I'll see you then.